Hello, I'm Penelope Maver and welcome to Earth Converse Podcast, an exploration into our relationship and conversations with the Earth, all in the hope of inspiring a deeper connection with ourselves, each other and the Earth that is our home. In this episode, I'm going to try something different. I will have a conversation with a teacher I have never met, who I don't actually know and who I won't actually be conversing with. <laughs> Sound confusing? The person in question is meditation teacher Tara Brach. I first came across her talks in 2011, and anybody who reads my blog will know I love her work. From sacred pausing to being porous, she helps us to be aware and compassionate with ourselves, each other, and the earth. And because of the influence she has had on me, I invited her to be a contributor, but she gracefully declined because of work commitments but it's happy I quote her work, so I will endeavour to represent her work well. And to that, I will focus on a particular talk she first gave in 2015, entitled Earth's Crisis on the Edge of the Roof. You'll find a link to the talk and her website, tarabrak.com, in the podcast episode description. And her talks are always an engaging fusion of Buddhist and Western psychology, Storytelling, jokes, poetry and prose. In this talk, she draws on Rumi, Emerson, environmentalist Joanna Macy, cosmologist Brian Swim. There's even a goldfish story amongst many gems. There's a wonderful 52 minutes. But in this, I will condense it and quote her from a transcript and in parts, literally bring her voice in from the recording. So you get a feel for her view on our relationship and conversations with the earth. So over the years, she has posed this question through a Dharma lens. A question which seems to be more and more urgent. What will it take to have us collectively awaken to the suffering of our earth? You may want to pause to contemplate that big question yourself. And I'll mark this reflection point with the forest sound. I think if I asked her to capture the essence of her perspective on this, she would say... So our basic ignorance is that we forget we belong to the earth, that we're of the earth, and that whatever happens affects all of us, that it's collective. As she explores in her talk, yes, there is a growing consciousness, but it is slow, and there's still a huge amount of indifference and ignorance in the poisoning of our earth is continuing at a horrific pace. Still um, a kind of crisis that's a mental or conceptual problem. It's not my personal crisis. It's not taken in in a way that really um, shakes the nervous system. For me, and this talk was inspired by a line of Rumi's. Sit, be still, and listen. For you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. Sit, be still, and listen, for you are drunk, and we are at the edge of the roof. So if you're looking for this talk, it's called On the Edge of the Roof. <laughs> I just thought it was such a cool line. <laughs> but the teaching that Rumi is saying is the same, that we're drunk, we're in a trance of some sort, and our planet's in great trouble. 
And this encapsulates the core of the Buddha's teaching, the path of awakening. And the Buddha's core teaching is, if we don't acknowledge suffering, if we don't acknowledge that our heart is hurting, that we're, that we're not aligned with ourselves, that we're living in a way that's causing us pain, that we're addicted, that we're not feeling intimate with others, if we don't acknowledge that our earth is dying, that the oceans are dying, if we don't acknowledge, then we can't respond. We are caught in trance. So she explores how we can wake up from this drunkenness. And I think if I was to ask her, what conversations are we having? She may have responded with this. The most useful ways to understand our development, how we get stuck and how we heal, is to think of evolution in terms of three phases. And you can think of it developmentally as an individual and as a species. And the first phase is where we're fused with the world. I mean, when, we, when, we're first, when we're in the womb and we're first come out of the womb, there's still a sense that there's no separation from the natural world. We're just one with it all. And it's not, it, this, this fusion is not an enlightened fusion. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's a process to be aware of awareness so that we're united, but awake to that uni being united. So this is the primordial fusion. And then we emerge as a self-conscious ego. And that is a process of separation where awareness takes itself to be the form, where we feel separate, where there's me, and there's a world out there. And as I many times use the phrase, the, the primal mood of that egoic self is fear. Because whenever there's a sense that I am apart from the beloved, I am apart from a, a sense of belonging, whenever there's a sense of separation, there's a fear that in some way I am in danger, I will be hurt, I am short-term. It's all true. We are short-term if we're identified with the separate self. And I need more to make it. So then we get stuck in our patterns as a reactive ego that's separate from the world. The third phase is awakening to a true belonging, awakening to realize this web of life, we're part of it. And this awareness that's recognizing this web of life is our essence. She says that most of humankind is at this egoic phase. There's a sense of mortality and a lot of clinging and a lot of avoiding that we're drunk. And so that's where our conversations are at. And what is driving that, you may ask? There are two big delusions. Okay? And one delusion is that sense that I mentioned of this kind of primordial fear, the sense that around the corner something is going to go wrong. And, and hand in hand with that is, I'm not enough and I don't have enough. So there's a chronic going for something more. I need more. I need more approval. I need more food. I need more possessions. I need more attention. I need, I want. And as she points out. It's not questioned. It's like, why is it good to keep on having more consumption and more productivity? I mean, if you're obese, why is it good to eat more? If you're rich, why is it good to own more? If you're a warming planet, why is it good to have more oil-based production? You know, why? It's that same thing. It's, all, it's this goodness is I need more. It's feeding more. So that's one delusion. Never enough. Have to be more. 
The other delusion is that the objects out there are the source of what we want. So whether it's another person and we want to get their money or their affection, or it's the earth and we want its resources, it's this, there's an objectifying of the world outside of us. This is part of unreal other, that we're real, we're the center of the universe, and everything else is a player on the stage. And um, this is really part of our historic egoic narrative. It's really part of manifest destiny, if you think about it that, you know, there's this driven entitlement to vanquish and destroy that which was indigenous, the rights of settlers, taking the wealth to make more for empire. I mean, this is, we're going back hundreds of years, but it was like, yeah, this is our right. We can go somewhere and take from whoever's native in that area and expand the empire. It was a papal decree. It's the same thing with global business. It's this attitude towards the natural world um, that it's ours for the taking and that humans are at the center and we're above all the other species and we can do what we want. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? I'm just kind of... Okay. Okay. It's really dangerous for the earth that one species thinks it's entitled to consume and produce and ravage and she talks about what exacerbates this is that we are distanced from nature itself and ourselves. The more we think, the more we're in our heads, the more we perceive ourselves as part from the rest of the world. And that's even more exacerbated by how we live in a virtual and cyber reality. She talks of the US, but it is true for many that 90% of our time is now indoors and in a virtual world. And that has to affect our relationship with our larger body of the earth, we are less intimate and less actively involved with the natural world. And if we're disembodied and our attention can't really sink into what's here, uh, we can't activate the compassion networks in our brain. So we can hear about terrible things happening on the earth. We can get more information than we've ever gotten about what's going on. But if we're not embodied, and if the mirror neurons aren't activated, the compassion will be mental, not heartfelt. We won't respond. We have to feel the suffering and the beauty to the poem. We have to sit, be still, listen. The only way to really feeling your wholeness of being, feeling the mystery, feeling beauty, feeling love, is to feel. We have to feel, which means if we're not feeling our own feelings or if we're not feeling the pain of the earth, if we're cut off, we're not going to be open to feeling the joy and the beauty and the mystery. It's the only way is through actually contacting what's here, feeling it. And this is no different than... Um, the teachings in any system, whether it's in, in Western psychology or 12-step or Buddhist psychology, that what is locked in our nervous system until we touch it and contact it fully with awareness stays locked in. So Rumi puts it in a simple way for us in this talk. Sit, be still, 
listen, for you're drunk and we're at the edge of the roof. So we begin by acknowledging what's going on, uh, the realness of uh, that we're poisoning our earth, our sorrow about it, our anger about it, our our feeling of uh, no power about it. He goes on to offer that when we're in presence with the suffering of this earth, we feel others being present, we feel our tenderness, and we start coming home to a feeling of really belonging. And we feel part of a great mystery. Beautifully, she says, you know, we have an amazing universe, and our presence brings that awareness and wonder alive in us. The decision to act on behalf of this earth has to come out of our hearts. So for the next right action... I like the way Wendell Berry puts it. He says, we don't have a right to ask whether we're going to succeed or not. The only question we have a right to ask is, what's the right thing to do? What does this earth require of us if we want to continue to live on it? So we can only make a step. If I'd asked her about what conversations do we need to be having and what actions do we need to be taking, she may have responded with this. All we can do is care and take a step. And then we're being true to our hearts. Because we really don't know. We just don't know. So we start reflecting on it. And I think probably most everyone listening has reflected in some ways on, so what is, what is the earth asking for me in my own life? And there's many different ways that we can try to sense our own carbon footprint and there's different ways we can watch how we're living and educate ourselves and speak aloud our, our, with each other our experience of what's happening to this earth, the feelings of loss, the feelings of love. There's a lot in, we can do individually. And we need to focus on systemic change. It's bigger. It's a collective process where we need our institutions to shift their policies away from this perpetual growth economy, this idea that we're always supposed to be consuming and producing more, and, and move it towards what's, really me what's the real meaning of well-being. How do we impact the policies that really govern the production and consumption of fossil fuel? How do we affect the dissemination of information that informs and awakens so people really know? You know so these are larger questions. But I think the thing I want to most emphasize is that the only real energy that will get us going is, is responding collectively. So her offering from Rumi at an individual and collective level, sit, be still, listen, and to act from there. And in doing this, we embrace the mystery. And this, I love this, it will make you go out to see the stars tonight. Ralph Waldo Emerson once asked what we would do if the stars only came out once every thousand years. No one would sleep that night, of course. The world would become religious overnight. We would be ecstatic, delirious, made rapturous by the glory of God. Instead, the stars come out every night and we watch television. Or go online, I add. And beautifully, she ends the talk with this. In these final moments, please feel within yourself whatever 
prayer you have for this living earth, for all beings. I hope this has given you a taste of Tara Brach's deep work and wisdom. Go and listen to the full talk and access her other work. She offers her talks and meditations free of charge. And of course, donations do make a difference. So we'll pause here and see you back for the next Earth Converse podcast. Let us know what you think and what you need so the podcast can be helpful and meaningful for you. Please come and engage with the Earth Converse website, Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram. And in the meantime, enjoy Earth one conversation at a time. And thank you, dear Katinka, for sending this bird song and gong from Bangkok. <laughs> <laughs>